Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Nike, great to see you. As our, our listeners and viewers know, you know, we launched The Invisible Men as a documentary, you know, 30 years ago, all with this very simple idea of demystifying Black excellence. And we like to have on guests that many people may not know, uh, but are doing incredible things in academia or business or philosophy. And we're very pleased today uh, to have on as a guest, John McWhorter. Hello, John, how are you doing? Hey, Ian. <sighs> Good to uh, be here. All right, excellent. Well, you know, John may not be as invisible these days because he's doing great work. You know, many folks may know John as a linguistic professor at Columbia University. He's an author and, in fact, has two books uh, coming out. Uh, uh, the first book coming out uh, in May Nine Nasty Words, great, great title, sounds like a George Carlin uh, skit, <laughs> and, then, and then The Elect, which I know a lot of people are waiting for, uh, coming out in November. So, you know, John, thank you as always. And, and I should preface this, you know, um, we were talking a little bit about this, John. You know, when Nike and I uh, started this 30 years ago, it was in the aftermath of the Rodney King a verdict that found these officers not guilty for this terrible incident. And there was a lot, this narrative started to emerge about black men almost being an endangered species. Like, you know, you, if you drive your car, you're going to be beaten by the police. If you're walking on the street, if you're taking a shower, you know, you're going to be somehow <laughs> accosted. And here we were, Nike and I and other members of the black community at Harvard, we felt invisible. And so we decided to create this film back then uh, with Randall Kennedy. Uh, and fast forward 30 years, in the aftermath of, of uh, George Floyd, you know, even though conditions are demonstrably better, it seemed like the narrative is almost the same, almost worse than what existed 30 years ago. So we decided to you know, launch this podcast. So I'm curious, where, was you, where were you 30 years ago um, in this kind of context, and and are things worse uh, than where we were 30 years ago? I can't believe that it's been that long, because I remember that moment very clearly. You know, I was in the same boat as you two were. I mean, Ian, I wish I had had a Nike, because I was at Stanford as a grad student in, in linguistics, but as it happened, for random reasons, I knew an awful lot of law students, socially I was halfway a law student for a while there. And I knew a lot of black ones. It wasn't that I didn't know any black men. I knew a bunch of them. And yet I felt very lonely because my feeling on Rodney King was that was a travesty of justice. I remember at the time thinking things are going to change now that you can record these things. And I guess that was kind of naive, but I remember thinking, yes, this, this is wrong. And yet I found that in talking to other black people, this included professors as well as students, that I was supposed to assume that what happened to Rodney King was something that there for the grace of God could have been me, that as one person put it, didn't that show you that a black person can't 
justice in this country. And I remember thinking, I know that in 1965, a black person couldn't get justice. I know that when I was 10 in 1970, I'm glad I was 10 because there were some things I would have encountered otherwise. But in 1991 and two, I remember thinking, no, it, we've come a long way. And yet these people were talking as if the world was still in those black and white newsreels. I was in Palo Alto. You would have sworn these people were in Birmingham. And I really didn't get why. I was, I'm not one to think you're all crazy. Like I remember at the time, one of the people I was talking to was a, a woman, a black woman who I was kind of dating. It was long distance. This is before you could do this. So, you know, it's the phones. It's not the same. But we were dating to the extent that you could doing that. Right. And we couldn't quite get it together because she believed this sort of thing. And I just, what am I missing? Because it's not like I had some de-racialized childhood. My mother was a social worker. She literally taught a course called Racism 101. She frankly didn't like white people. I had been taught the proper lessons. But I thought, I'm not feeling this danger. And so I remember reading an issue of The Nation at that time. And not in hate. I was really going through and saying, what is it that I don't know? And I learned some things, but not enough to make me think that I was wrong. And I must admit that Rodney King was the beginning of why I'm sitting here talking to you two. Because Stop. I remember thinking, I'm not crazy, neither are they, but they're not going to let go of this. And I think there's something wrong. That was what I was thinking. That. So interesting, John, but, but it had to come from somewhere. Okay, so your mother was a social worker. She, she, <laughs> did you say she didn't like white people? Not much, <laughs> no. <laughs> but she exposed me to many of them, so I don't have any problem with white people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. So, but... So you were so you were at Stanford, but at that time you had had a chance to kind of develop your sense of the world to, to the point where you could actually contrast it with, with what this prevailing narrative was. Was, there, historical anything that happened, was yeah. there anything that happened to you earlier as it related to race that that gave you that insight? Well, we um, from two to eleven, I grew up in a very integrated neighborhood. Um, it's called Mount Airy in Philadelphia. And it really is, it is, and it was then, like white, black, white, black, very NPR, middle class, and not integrated as in the black people are moving in, the white people are moving out. It's been that way since about 1956. That helped. And so white people were never alien. My parents, they shouldn't have because they couldn't really afford it, but they sent me and my sister to private schools with a lot of white kids. So white wasn't alien but i think we know that you can have exactly that experience and still come out thinking rodney king could have been me i was a nerd i'm hyper logical you know i like keeping my food in order on my plate for me to think rodney king is me is for me well you know it's something else about me that i marched to be my own drummer i'm not patting myself on the back i think a lot of people adopt that ideology out of a sense that they want fellowship you were part of a group and we all suffer from this abstract but powerful force. That's tempting. And I don't think it's not a race thing. Everybody wants that somehow. But one way you could do that as a black person is this exaggeration. I was never that, you know, I, I've, I've got my friends. I think I also want to go read a book. I, I'm not a joiner. So, yeah, it's weird because my mother is the kind of person who you think would have raised somebody who would be right up on those barricades. I just it didn't feel right. It didn't make any sense based on the life that I was leading. Yeah, and it, so here we are. Yeah, that's interesting because there there does seem to be a tendency to have solidarity with, you know, a Rodney King or a George Floyd, 
in that, but not someone like a Thomas Sowell or Clarence Thomas. Like, what, oh no, not them. Well, okay, <laughs> but why? 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 Why not them? Like, what, what is it about those two that I just mentioned that makes it so attractive to make that deep connection in the black community? Do you think because there is a certain attractiveness, oddly, to feeling victimized, to calling out what someone else is doing to you, especially when what they're doing isn't actually keeping you from getting anything that you want. It's particularly easy to nurture that defeatist identity when it's more a kind of a performance than about any doors that are actually closed to you. That's why this really gets going in 1966. You think about any black person in the 50s or the 40s, nobody's exaggerating. Nobody walks around pretending it's worse than it is. And if anything, a lot of them seem to be in denial about how bad that it is. That's normal human behavior. All of a sudden, after about 66, you have people walking around pretending that it's 1936. And that's because it's human to want to point at a victim. It's that tattletale syndrome, the martyr syndrome. All human beings around the world have it. There's some individuals like that. Our race ends up stressing that, I think, too much. And it means real blackness is being the victim. We're all victims together, even if it's in these abstract ways. Tom Sowell isn't interested in that. Tom Sowell wants, he knows that there's racism, but he wants to embrace the progress. But that, as we know, is a weird way of being black. So you can't have that. And you can't have Clarence Thomas, who doesn't want us to get handouts. One of the saddest things is the idea that to be a real black person, you cannot be subject to real competition. That's the way Shelby Stills put it, that I thought that's just it. The idea is that to be a real black person is to never be subjected to serious competition. And people today, brilliant people with degrees who are you know, in their 50s and 60s, people our age and older, will sit there and actually say this sort of thing. And it's so sad to watch young people saying it. How dare you expect me to perform at a really high level? Because if you do that, you're not acknowledging the oppression that I suffer, says the upper middle class daughter of a doctor and a lawyer. That started in 1966, and we're just stuck with it. I think all three of us probably like the idea of competing and you know, maybe, maybe doing well and feeling like we got it because we deserve it. So many of our brothers and sisters feel that that's inauthentic. That doesn't mean they're crazy, but it means that we have been taught to get off on being professional victims. John, you know, when I, when I look at your background uh, in the earlier days, and you literally started with an associate's degree and then completed a, a PhD at one of America's greatest schools. How did your friend pool evolve from the associate degree to the bachelor's to the master's to the PhD? Did it evolve and change as you, as you talk about kind of being a loner in, a, in an individual who thought for himself? know what you're going for it doesn't quite correspond but what i can tell you is this i didn't know it at the time but if you looked at me at 10 i was a very socially black-rooted person white people were other i remember you know around that age you don't talk about it much but sex the, the attraction starts kicking in around 10 when that happens i remember a white girl liked me and I felt about that the way I would have felt 50 years before. Her name was, it's been so long, Shauna Finkel. And I remember thinking, I didn't say it, but I think white. Yeah, you know, only whatever, look at a black girl. And that was the way that I was. 
Then you, you check in on me at 16 and I have many fewer black friends. And the reason for that was because that idea had kicked in starting in adolescence that if you really like school, then you, you must be white. And nobody ever gave me a really hard time about that. I was lucky. I watched other people being given a hard time. But so you feel it. Who likes you? Who doesn't? Who do you connect with? And I know that by the time I was 16, there was that sense that I wasn't clicking with a lot of the black kids that I knew. And by the time I hit college, that had happened. I never didn't have any black friends. But there's a big difference between my social life at 20, which was mostly white, and my social life at 10. Now, going through grad school, it, it in and out, like around the Rodney King time, here's partly why I get what you're going for, but I was working against it. At that time, with a couple of other people, one of whom is Leslie Harris, who is famous now as um, talking about the 1619 Project. Leslie and me and somebody else back at Stanford, we formed a club. We wanted to have a club of black grad students because we wanted to meet each other. And I was part of that because I just thought we're not going to do it by chance. There aren't enough of us. Let's meet. And during this is when the Rodney King thing happened. And I thought I'm sitting here trying to be part of something, but I don't believe this. And so, yeah, that exactly. And I'm not telling tales on Leslie. I don't remember talking to her specifically about this, but she and I knew each other from forming that club. I mean, staying on the theme of academia, does does Dr. West at Harvard have a have a have a fair complaint? No, he doesn't. I mean, 20 years ago, his complaint was based on pretending that to do real academic work is unblack. And I wrote that and I hoped he didn't read it because I don't think he's a bad person. But um no, Cornell doesn't like to write boring refereed papers. Cornell doesn't like to write little books that only 20 people read. And of course that sounds so deadly, but that academics get their credit for. I don't know what kind of teacher he is. I genuinely don't know. I hear that he's a dedicated teacher. I hope that means he sits with grades, stacks of homeworks and grades them and has office hours where he specifically helps students, not just sits and preaches and tells stories, but specifically helps students with exactly what they need. I assume that he teaches two classes a semester and not with all the classes being big seminars, but his job is to walk in and do set pieces and the TAs really teach the class. I don't know. But I do know what you were expected to do as an academic. And I know that in general, he wasn't doing it 20 years ago. Now, this thing here seems to also have to do with the fact that he took on a position where tenure is not something that infrastructurally would have been expected anyway. And he wants to be given the imprimatur. I get the feeling there's, a, there's an issue of he likes acknowledgement, et cetera. He and I are just different creatures there. I, I don't see why he has to get tenure again, but he wants that. But 20 years ago, I'm sorry, the issue was that he seemed to think that because I'm black, giving salt, giving savory speeches and hanging around with Al Sharpton and doing a rap CD, all of which is fine in itself, that makes me a professor because I'm black and we're different. And I remember thinking, no, we're not different. You should be doing all that stuff and being an academic. And if you're not going to be an academic, if Larry Summers calls you out, you just have to eat crow. And at the time, he said, well, I'm working on three academic books. That was 2001. This is 2021. Those books don't seem to be forthcoming. Ooh. And so that's the thing. Ooh. I hate to say that. I don't, I don't have any problem with Cornell West, but I do not like that he sometimes seems to imply that if you're a black academic, you're not supposed to work that hard. 
I shouldn't even put it that way, that if you're a black academic, you are exempt from doing actual academic work. Oof. I don't think we should be. Either would Du Bois would have, I think, agreed with me. Right, right. Wow, very powerful. So, so John, I mean, the very fact that you can say those things and feel if I that, can, okay. <laughs> if I can, you know, we'll no, see. No, that's what, that's what I, that's where my question's going. How is it that you can, you know, are we about to start, you know, when we post this a Twitter storm where you are suddenly hauled into the dean's office and. You know, because there are a lot of professors on college campuses right now that are terrified. They could never, ever say what you just said. My being black will protect me a little, but not completely. I'm not saying these things just to throw out the gauntlet or to be daring, but because they are, they are truths. And, you know, I am fully prepared. The mob may come after me. I have made arrangements because it might. It might happen. However, I really hope it doesn't, partly because I work hard at my job and partly because I don't think I ever say anything that, you know, would make me deserve being deprived of my, my livelihood and my post. But I have decided I am not going to not say things that I believe out of a cowering fear of that kind of mob. I know that after a certain point, administrators would just decide that I wasn't worth the trouble. But I'm going to I'm going to be myself. And the mundane truth is that it's gotten to the point that, you know, if I lose that job, I do have other streams of income. I, I, I could keep eating, but it would be very sad. It would be unfortunate. I don't know whether. That, but I'm saying these things that I'm saying here because I I believe them. But I will add this. I don't have any problem with Cornell West as a person. I don't think that he's a huckster. I don't think that he's fake. I've met him a couple times. He's, he seems very nice. Yeah, that's, I'm talking about a particular thing. I'm not trying to pull a Michael Eric Dyson here. But still, there is, I do have that particular beef with his modus operandi and the way he shares it with the media. Yeah. Well, and just, just stating the obvious, thank you for your, your bravery. Thank you for your voice. It's outrageously important. I, as you know, I'm not trying to be brave, but I, I'm glad that people see that. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm still here. <laughs> I mean, one of the way. things I, f I find interesting, you know, Shelby Steele, just on this topic, you know, wrote white guilt, and you know, that's the, you know, you know, people are falling over themselves to prove, you know, they want to renounce their privilege. But I, I often feel that one of the issues is black guilt, in the sense of black folks who are in the middle and upper class who've actually embraced the ideas of family and faith and hard work and entrepreneurship are leading their life and, and, and have privilege, yet are not usually outspoken about some of the narrative. It's like, yes, racism exists, but here are the strategies that we've deployed. What do you think about that? What, what if there was a sudden sort of resurgence of, of, of middle and upper class black folk to say, hold on, yes, racism exists, but what we're talking about now, this idea of lack of competition or, you know, my life is constantly in danger, that just isn't true. Like, wouldn't that have some impact right now? You know, in order for people to really get that you can be an aware and compassionate Black person who understands racism, and yet still not embrace this tacit slogan of yes, we can't as a kind of pride. 
I think the only way it would really get out there, it would be some sort of artistic, dramatic portrait of black people, not in the Stone Age. Slavery has been done enough. But black people in the 30s, 40s, and 50s doing things. If somebody, Tyler Perry, I hope you're listening. If somebody would do this lushly produced miniseries about a black family at that time, and you have Martin Luther King, you have some terrible things happening, but you also show that these are people who just don't think like us. I think it would be like science fiction. Mad Men started in 1960. 20 years ago, I had this vision, and I, I wasn't going to do it. I now know I have limitations, but I thought I'm going to write a science fiction novel. And it's going to be in 1960, not in 2300 and not in 1740. 1960, and I was going to have it be focused on Black people and how people like us thought and lived then with the details, like what kind of pants, what, what kind of beer did people like? Like these are real people. Then Mad Men messed it up because they basically <laughs> did something better than me, except it was about white people. And so I just kind of gave it up. But it would need that because people like us saying it didn't used to be this way. Now, I think younger people just think, well, they were old and things were different. And of course, you could say, well, don't you realize that things were worse then? But you know, people are still steeped in this idea that the microaggressions are just as bad. And so, yeah, I worry. Most human beings aren't historians. You know, we're thinking about what Tom Sowell writes about. The typical human being of any kind anywhere is living in the moment. And so I remember talking to a very intelligent black college friend of mine who really went over to the left. We're, we're not friends anymore, just she hated losing the race, but we were very good friends in college. And we were fighting over these sorts of things when learning that losing the race was basically breaking us up. And I kept on saying, well, you know, back then, et cetera, you know, families, intact families, 1960, black families. And all she could get was, that was then, this is now. And it's not that she's not smart, but the emotion just wouldn't let, yes. putting a block on her engaging it. And I just thought, I can't reach this. And so that just left me frustrated in that way. Because I think she was normal. I don't think she was eccentric in that. John, one more question in the, in the academic realm and specific to Columbia. You know, obviously I followed as a father the, uh, the murder of Tessa Majors uh, you know, I may have cried over that one because I've got a 17, a 15, and a 13. Can you imagine that oh, happening? I, I don't want to. I've, I've thought about it, though. My son's going off to college this year. But how, two, two questions, but you, you take it where it should go. How has the woke community at Columbia responded? And then the other half of the question would be, how, how has the campus responded to that? Well, that's interesting. I've avoided thinking about it. No one says a thing because it doesn't fit the narrative. To the extent that you would try to talk about that with somebody. Yeah, I remember some things that came up in a seminar. The idea is that the black boys must be understood. They're acting out because of a racist society. And of course, with that episode, what everybody thinks of, talk about like a stage set, is look at what happened to the Central Park Five and what they got blamed for. And so let's go easy on these guys. And there's no conversation possible. You know, the, the, the idea of like the Central Park Five were out in the park. They certainly didn't do anything like what they were accused of. But a you know, little, little bit of you that asked, still, what were you doing out there? What is, it, what is this mischief 
that you guys like to do. And it certainly is not raping anybody or anything like that, but just must you do that at night? And then with these guys, they are doing something really terrible. You just can't talk about it. But though, it basically those guys, I think to the good white person are blameless and nobody wants to think about the fact that that means they're not human. Guys, give, a 30, give a 30 second background on who Tessa Majors was. was. She was a white undergraduate. Um, I think she was 19 and she was um, in Morningside Park, which was not the best move, but she's in Morningside Park and she's jogging late at night and some black teenagers from the neighborhood. Literally teenagers, 13, 14 year olds. Yeah, little, kind of little boys. Right. They, they hold her up and they want her money. She um, resisted and one of them killed her. And they, last I know, they a knife. Yeah, knifed her and left her there and she kind of reeled. And she, and she crawled up the stairs. So from, from Morningside Park, because I used to live on Riverside Drive, you go up the stairs to Columbia campus. She literally crawled up the stairs, bleeding to death from the, her heart being hit with a knife and reached the security booth and said, help me. And I believe died there. And it's a really long staircase too. And yeah, so that, that happened. And you know, I mean, you can have a conversation about fathers who aren't in the house and things like that. But, you know, the boy who did that, there's a censure that that boy frankly deserves. Any human being would doing something like that. And yet that can't be talked about. And we just kind of move on. That is what that was. Fascinating. Ian, should we move to the speed round? Go ahead. Go ahead. Now you have me thinking about that. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've reflected on it a lot. So, John, we have a, a segment of the podcast that we call the Speed Round, where we present to our guests uh, uh, two different individuals or two different philosophies and ask the guests to select which one resonates with them and then tell us why. So we'll, we'll start with our anchor, which is Martin or Malcolm? Martin. Um, Malcolm was very charismatic. I get it. He taught a lot of people a kind of black pride. That's not what King was for. But Malcolm, unfortunately, is also the beginning of black anger as a performance. That's not what he meant, but that's the echo that he left, especially because he was taken early. King had a more constructive message. King worked with the powers that be and got really big stuff done. Malcolm was held back by an organization that told him not to work with powers that be. He would have started to try, but that fist in the air, I get how attractive that is, but it is dangerous because it leads to the sense that putting that fist up is the action in itself. So yeah, I'm old fashioned, Martin. Powerful, thank you. S civil rights or economic development? Ah. <laughs> um. Well, it has to be both. But no, if I had to choose, you have to have some civil rights. Economic development is very important. I wish people would pay more attention to it now, especially. But you see what happened when that was all there was. It was very easy for that to be taken away, not only by, say, a race riot, but by desegregation which had, you know, ironic effects. Mm, powerful statement. There needed to be a civil rights revolution. My feeling, though, is that there only needed to be one. Mm. And the, the last one, uh, Jay-Z or Kanye? <laughs> Kanye. Um, he, as a person, 
has has some issues. <laughs> um, but you know, I know I'm supposed to say Jay Z because he's raw and there's the, the the drug dealer story. But no, Kanye is a really good producer. It's funny. There's there's a thing that gets around that hip hop is stale because it doesn't create anything. It's just mixing a whole lot of stuff together. I, I disagree that the art of the mixture that Kanye does is the sort of thing that leaves you thinking, how did he think of that? He'll stick in some little bit of something from Steely Dan. It's like, where did that come from? That's the nature of genius. With Jay-Z, there's great poetry. I understand what people like. I guess part of it is just that the story he has to tell does not interest me as much as I guess it should. I'm just not, okay, the street, yes, all right. But that's just that that's not my story. He's a poet. OK, but it's it's about this street, straight faced thing where you can see I'm flying blind. Here. <laughs> Kanye has kind of a sense of humor, which I yeah, I'm going to people are going to hate me for this because Jay-Z is the one where he's anthologized like he's Walt Whitman and everybody likes to make fun of Kanye West because he's insane. But I shouldn't say that. Apparently, he literally is. But I find West richer i find him subtler he's just more my style mm. like i'm thinking i i have something called a cd and i frankly i've got like 1200 and i'm looking at my section my section of rap and many people will say i didn't know that he yes he does <laughs> i've got all of kanye up to like two albums ago wow like, I've only got three. Only, only three. And there's a reason. Yeah. It's that's that's what that is. Kanye. Thank you. And you, you you referenced Rich, and I don't know if you happen to see this this week. It hit the hit the newswire that with his strategic partnerships with Adidas and other people, his his however they measure it, his net worth is six point six billion, making him quote unquote the richest African American ever. That's some money. That's real dull. <laughs> You're not going to get that with Substack. That is fantastic. I wish both of them well. But um, yeah, in terms of what you're going to listen to, I would have to say I'm a Kanye person. Yeah. Thank you. Very interesting. Um, you know, John, just listening to you, it, it, you know, you're such a you're such an inspiring figure and, and courageous in many ways. And I, and I'm curious, you know, what sometimes happens to uh talented black folk is that you're always talking about race you know it's just it's it's so do you ever get tired <laughs> <laughs> yeah um what would you rather talk about well you know i thing is i do get to talk about it because i have my um my linguistics podcast um lexicon valley it's late and i'm about to lay down the 125th episode that i've done of that wow. and that show is only about language almost never about race and language, just hmm. linguistics nerd stuff and i have a whole other following who want to hear me talk about russian and verbs and I, I get to do that do i get a little tired of this of course in that we need to have this conversation but we all know you kind of have it over and, and over again and, and there are people who you meet where you know they're thinking here is this this black man and he's going to talk about black things and you always feel a little <laughs> diminished and so you know ian you and i have been in a room in settings like that and it's so true. but it's the way it has to be and to me it's a duty 
Like my mother, she's no longer with us and she had different views than me, but I got it from her. She had that duty. It used to be called race man. And although many people wouldn't know that that's what I'm doing, I figure we've got to do this. And so, yeah. Do you get tired of it? You do? I do. I do. You know, I have opinions, informed opinions on other topics. <laughs> there are other things. That's right. Especially and in if fact, you're... sometimes when we talk about the other things, we actually realize, huh, maybe there's strategies there that might impact the, the discussion here. Mm-hmm. You know, A creative thought. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes. Well, so, well, uh, you know, as we come to the close, John, uh, you know, we, um, as, as I mentioned, Nike and I created the Invisible Men 30 years ago, with, you know, getting together different uh, men from the Harvard Graduate School. But we created this character, Daryl, the 16-year-old. Uh, you know immediately who Daryl is. Go ahead. Yeah. So interesting, right? Yeah. The, yes. so, so Daryl, and, and, you know, there are a lot of Daryls today of all races, who are trying to figure out their path in the world, in a world that seems so divided, sometimes hostile to their dreams. What, what advice would you give to 16-year-old Black Daryl or 16-year-old uh, Daryl, uh, Daniela of, of any race, you know, of, of what they're, you know, what, what can America be for them? Daryl is like, my friend in the 70s or, or something. Just that name, that boy, I, I know what you mean. Um, well, Daryl, I'm, I'm not sure what I have to say to Daniela. She has other issues. I actually knew with Daniela. But Daryl, it would be, you know what, Daryl? What I want you to do is I want you to understand that the most important thing about you, the most interesting thing about you is not what white people think of you, the most interesting thing about you is not what white people don't think about you. The most interesting thing about you is not what white people might not completely understand about you. White people are very interesting in their ways, but what they think about you is not what's interesting about you. Be you. Daryl, there are going to be people, especially when you go to college, who are going to start teaching you that one way of feeling good you know, Daryl, there are a lot of ways of feeling good. When you go to college, I hope you start drinking some, some liquor and there's some other things you're probably going to do because I did them. Another way of feeling good is to start thinking white people might not like us. Don't. Just don't. Because, Daryl, if you think about it, if you go through your life wondering whether white people quite understand you, wondering whether white people don't like you and they're just pretending to, if you go through your life doing that, one day you're going to lay down, you're going to die. That's what happens. You're going to get a little tired and you're going to lay down and you're going to die. And if you spent your whole life thinking about yourself as an image in a white person's eyes, you let the white person win. And by the time you realize how silly that was, you're dead and you can't come back. Don't do that to yourself, Daryl. That's what I would say to, to Daryl today. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> I get it. All right. Well, Mr. John McWhorter, uh, author, professor, and just uh, brilliant commentarian. Uh, thank you for thank you for being with us, and thank you everyone for joining us on this latest episode of The Invisible Men.
If you'd like to see other episodes, you can uh, find them at www.invisible.men. Uh, Nike, John, as always, a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I, you know, John, you're now old enough where I'm going to label you an American treasure because that's what you are. You're not too old, so that doesn't mean you're too old, but you're old enough that we can now define you as a treasure because you are. Thank you for joining the podcast. Back at you too, and thank you for having me. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 